Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Hi there, and welcome back to Life Out Loud, a literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true, maybe all too true, stories. I'm Amanda, one of your hosts today. And I'm Kiara, also one of your hosts today. I'm Sarah, another one of your hosts today. And I'm Sarah, back for the last episode of the fourth season. And I'm Evelyn. I was an author on the past two episodes of the podcast, and I'm excited to be back for this last episode as a host. I'm Riley, another one of your hosts today, ready for this 10th, and yes, sadly last, episode in the fourth season. I'm Sashiella. Thank you for joining us in the last episode entitled In Search of Truth. In this episode, two authors attempt to find the truth behind certain incidents through literary journalistic techniques. And I'm Sadie. Let's get into these stories. This next piece is by an author who is choosing to remain anonymous. Anon is currently a senior at John Jay College, majoring in criminology with a double minor in English and psychology. Anon enjoys exploring different kinds of foods around the city and spending quality time with others. Content warning for hard-to-hear topics. Because this is a true story, it contains descriptions and circumstances that may be difficult for some listeners to hear. Listener discretion is advised. Let's take a listen to this piece entitled Unwise and Irresponsible at the College of Alleged Criminal Justice. Section 1. Tea Time. You say, hey, would you like a cup of tea? And they go, oh my god, I would love a cup of tea. Thank you. And then you know they want a cup of tea. If you say, hey, would you like a cup of tea? And they're like, uh, I'm not really sure. Then you can make them a cup of tea or not, but be aware that they might not drink it. And if they don't drink it, then don't make them drink it. Just because you made it doesn't mean you're entitled to watch them drink it. <sighs> Here in the tiny conference room on the fifth floor of Heron Hall, we sit, giggle, and laugh at the cutesy stick figure video explaining consent. Black and white stick figures drawn to illustrate making, offering, and forcefully pouring tea down someone's throat flit across the screen. <sighs> Section 2. Title 9. The room is small, and the audience is smaller. Who's here for extra credit? A voice asks in the beginning, seemingly enthused at the idea that students came to better their grades. About half of the 13 student audience fling their hands up as high as they can, proud that they're here solely for that reason. With the room filled with students less than interested in the presentation, only a select few pay much attention to the facilitator whose eyes penetrate through you. Especially when she asks questions. She kind of stares the way my mother does when I've done something wrong. Maria, we later learned her name to be, is a tall, caramel-colored woman with freckles sprinkled across her voluptuous cheeks. Her hair bounces in a ponytail like a cheerleader at a football game. Her voice is soft, yet stern, appropriate for this workshop's content, the Title IX policy. Title IX policy. Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972 is a federal civil rights law that prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex in education programs and activities at universities receiving federal funds. Under Title IX, discrimination on the basis of sex can include sexual harassment or sexual violence, such as rape, sexual assault, sexual battery, and sexual coercion. Essentially, it's the City University of New York's policy in place to protect both students and faculty from sexual harassment and discrimination. Though many aren't aware of their rights as students, the Title IX Policy Workshop takes place to assure that the 13 of us know. Maria thoroughly crunches all the information that students need to know in the one-hour time slot she has during community hour. What are some examples of sexual misconduct, she says. What's quid pro quo? Can you give me a scenario of it? Back to back, Maria throws darts at us. It's as if it's a test to assure the workshop is successful. She knows damn well, though, that the students, especially those in the back, aren't even paying attention. Me, on the other hand, I'm writing everything down, peeking through the corners of my eyes as if they're peepholes which show me who I can recruit for my research about sexual harassment prompted by John Jay professors. 
Section 3. John Jay When you first enter John Jay at the 59th Street entrance, you are greeted by the men, or women, we don't discriminate, in black, whose uniform is embellished with golden badges and their name tags stamped on the top left chest. There they sit behind counters with their heavy, scary logbooks, ready to intimidate anyone who's forgotten their John Jay ID. Their eyes trace your steps as you walk closer to the entry, suspiciously watching as you swipe the rectangular piece of plastic. Beep! The gates move aside and lets you through. Here at John Jay, students lounge on gray and blue musty cushions that are scattered all across the new building, which is in fact new. Students play in the game room on the first floor, smacking pucks across a table or ping-pong balls back and forth. They play music which represents an array of diverse cultural backgrounds, many of which matching the very students who play them. Ignoring the no-eating posters right in front of them, other students hide on the dirty carpet lining of the library's aisles to eat their lunch in silence amongst the papery old book smell. Here at John Jay, students maneuver their ways into clubs and cliques to find people who help make the unbearable bearable. And there's a club for everything, even a socially awkward club. I can only imagine how their meetings go. But here at John Jay, students are sometimes preyed on too. Sifted out by those in power who use their titles to entice and seduce. Or at least, that's the story anyways. <sighs> Section 4. College of Alleged Criminal Injustice. By now, the news of the John Jay professors is known to some, forgotten by most, or hidden to others. On September 22, 2018, the New York Post and the New York Times published articles which covered four professors accused of sexual misconduct and drug use on campus. The two women, Naomi Haber and Claudia Kujukaru, revealed in phone interviews to the New York Post their relations with the professors and how they'd been taken advantage of. In a very detailed expose, Haber discussed the exchanges with professors she encountered during her time at John Jay. In 2014, Haber met Professor Rick Curtis, who she claimed turned her world upside down. According to the Post, Rick Curtis, 64, a respected anthropology professor who's been at the school 30 years and was a former chair of the sociology, anthropology, and law and police and science departments, was the ringleader of the John Jay scandal that washed through the mouths of many. Haber mentioned that with her initial meetings with Professor Curtis in 2014, he played a YouTube video of a woman demonstrating how to put a condom on a penis and one of himself bouncing bare-chested on an exercise ball, according to the New York Post. The article further disclosed that Professor Curtis allegedly had an agenda for Haber. In hopes to recruit a new head for the anthropology department, Professor Curtis tried persuading Haber to drive with him to meet the potential head in Pennsylvania to help convince him to choose John Jay. Haber rejected the proposal. Apart from the provocative sexual advances and attempt to have Haber persuade his friends, Professor Curtis allegedly sold and used drugs with co-workers and students, including Haber, on the secluded seventh floor of the Annex Building, or The Swamp, just a few blocks away from the new building. Haber said, Rick supplied weed to his devotees several times a day, which made it even harder for the swamp devotees to leave once they had become dependent on the drugs and, by extension, him, according to the New York Post. The New York Times also published a piece regarding the allegations. The article mentioned that security officers of the school apparently in mid-August found significant quantities of drugs and drug paraphernalia during an internal inquiry. But they did not contact police about the seizures until this month, which was September. And when they did, the New York Times said that they turned the drugs over to police without disclosing their inquiry or the circumstances under which they were recovered, one of the persons said. Haber revealed that other professors who Curtis introduced her to also made sexual advances. She told the Post that at a sociology department party in December of 2014, Professor Anthony Marcus hit on her. You are so sexy. I'm just so attracted to you, he supposedly said to Haber. Another source from the party told the Post that the 55-year-old Marcus was drunk and lunging towards Naomi, saying he wanted to fuck her. Haber also disclosed to the reporter that Professor Marcus, quote, violently raped her when she was a 21-year-old sophomore after a boozy night out at the academic conference in Washington, D.C. in 2015. 
She also stated that adjunct professor, 27-year-old Leonardo Dominguez, another friend of Professor Curtis, constantly bombarded her to have sex with him and kept insisting, regardless of the no's he received. Hero voiced that Dominguez would try and put his hands on my legs and on my butt. He would also stick his hands down my pants to see what underwear I was wearing and to feel my warm vagina, according to the New York Post. Claudia Kujukaru, now adjunct professor at John Jay, filed her complaint against full-time faculty, 70-year-old Barry Spont, who she mentioned constantly boasted about having sex with other students in exchange for grades and suggested to my partner and I to have sex in his office on the couch. Kujukaru said that, on one occasion, Spunt lifted his shirt to show her a scar on his abdomen. At the same time, he was rubbing his crotch. Haber said he also showed her the same scar. She professed that things got worse between her and Professor Spunt. Kujukaru disclosed that, quote, He placed his hand on my buttocks without consent, groping me. He made inappropriate comments about my unwillingness to sit on Rick's lap to show my gratitude about being helped by Dr. Curtis. Like Haber, Kujukaru also experienced Professor Curtis's invasiveness. A witness said he even saw Rick dive onto Kujukaru's lap on multiple occasions on campus, and she seemed annoyed by it. According to the New York Times, the four professors accused in Haber and Kujukaru's complaints are on paid administrative leave until the investigation is complete. <sighs> Section 5. Rate those professors. When never taking any of those professors on my own, I go to the one source that I trust. RateMyProfessor.com Barry Spont, 4.2 rating. 80% would take him again. Level of difficulty, 1.9. 12-23-2015 He has to be the most amazing professor I've ever met at John Jay. Besides that, he's also a great human being. He's kind and he cares about all his students. Midterm, final, and approximately 20-page paper. If you convince him, he will allow you to take only one of his tests. He's always there to help you with your grant and even your grad school guidance. Hmm, doesn't sound like the Barry Spunt from the article. Heck, his reviews made him sound like the professor students strive for. Claudia, on the other hand, would probably argue that the only thing Professor Spunt cares about is grabbing her ass without her consent. Maybe he's never seen the tea video. Next one, Leonardo Dominguez, 4.3 rating. 83% would take him again. Level of difficulty, 2.5. 6, 7, 2018. Amazing professor. He was so knowledgeable in his drug use and abuse class. He was very caring and showed effort in maintaining work and responsibility for his students. His class was not boring was actually very interesting for an 8 a.m. class. This was very impressive. There was no textbook, and his assignments were all very accurate in the syllabus. Haber might argue that he showed effort by constantly asking her to have sex with him. Allegedly. Is he holding a blunt in that photo that I just googled of him? Next one. Anthony Marcus. 3.8 rating. Level of difficulty? 1.3. 12-29-2015. Professor Marcus is awesome. He really knows his stuff and has lived everywhere. If you're one of those oversensitive PC people who can't handle a raw professor, then take someone else. Professor Marcus really makes you think and is awesome at breaking things down. He's very understandable that you're an adult with obligation. We'd love to take him again. Known for breaking things down is exactly what Haber might say. According to what she told the Post, he put his hands around my throat, choked me with both hands, and forced himself inside me without warning. Maybe he too hasn't seen the tea video. Last one, Richard Curtis, 5 rating, 100% would take again, level of difficulty, 1.7, 9-7-2018, love, 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 Rick Curtis, I did Mantica Fantica research project with Professor Curtis and it was amazing, taught me a lot and I hope we're able to work together again, 8-26-2016, he's so adorable, take him, he lectures a lot, but they're very interesting. He's an excellent anthropologist and always has amazing stories to share. He gives a lot of assignments, but you have the whole semester to do them. His assignments are very easy. Easy A. Not sure I'd say adorable, but the man is surely loved by some of his students. Haber would likely agree. Rick was magnetic, she told the Post. He introduced me to a world of deviants that I had no idea existed. Rick was an expert at sifting out those vulnerabilities. 
so he was aware how impressionable I was. Nothing but seemingly nice things said about all four on the site. Is this a trick? A silent outcry? <sighs> Section 6. President Mason speaks inaudibly. As a response to the New York Post's article, President Mason sent out an email talking in depth about the matter. In her note addressed to the entire John Jay community, she wrote, I am writing to update you on a serious matter of alleged misconduct by certain John Jay professors. While the ongoing investigation must remain confidential, I want to ensure you have timely and accurate information about the process. That was sent on September 24, 2018. Later in the email, she goes on to state, I have worked to strengthen and expand the channels and resources to address any complaints fairly and thoroughly while respecting the rights and privacy of all involved. I encourage you to access these resources here. After brushing past the actual issue to ensure the safety and fair treatment of everyone involved, President Mason reminded students of a town hall meeting which occurred on October 1, 2018. Town halls are ways for students to gather, question, request, and bring light to issues that the school has. Most town halls are recorded and posted for students who are interested enough to view it online. But sexual allegations against professors weren't as interesting. One article written for the John Jay newspaper, The Sentinel, covered the meeting. According to the article by Nancy Avalos Omania, memes began flooding the John Jay student app as it became obvious that the answer to almost every question was a referral to the Wellness Center, the Women's Center for Gender and Justice, the Public Safety Office, and the Title IX office on campus. This, according to the Sentinel, was the president's go-to answer whenever students expressed concerns about no longer feeling safe on campus or when a student expressed being bullied by the accusers. Understandably, the college representatives took the high road. It appeared that many believed that the town hall seemed more of an attempt to start the cleanup process of the sexual allegation mess. <sighs> Section 7. Shh. Since the allegations... Talk about the scandal seems hushed. Many shy away from talking about it or are afraid of their own opinions poisoning them. With no luck of face-to-face -face contact, my last resort was to utilize social media, in this case, the John Jay app. Hi there, I wrote to random students who posted an article regarding the allegations. I noticed that you like to post about the John Jay professors who were accused of sexual misconduct. I'm a senior currently doing research on students' thoughts and concerns about the matter. Are you interested in sharing your thoughts? Yeah. Try typing that 26 times to 26 different people. Try typing that to 26 different people 26 times and only have a handful respond. Needless to say, it seems like John Jay students were as eager as President Mason to answer questions. Though the forthcoming of student responses to my outreach was slow, some students replied instantly to get a say in the matter. One student responded, It hasn't affected my relationships with my professor much, but I'm way more on the alert than I was before. For a moment, I thought, about transferring since I didn't feel safe anymore. I was once a victim of sexual harassment for years, so safety is the most important thing for me. Another said, I was not surprised. All professors have power over their students and some use their power. She later elaborated that as a student, she goes to professor's office hours and usually experiences anxiety, that which is now heightened due to the allegations. Unfortunately, another student said, I do think the school is handling it poorly. Students are understandably concerned, and their response to these concerns are often simplistic and unhelpful. I even reached out to faculty for comments about the matter and concerning the safety of students. One professor confessed that he's even more cautious now with regards to his approach to his students. He even mentioned that he first heard about the allegations from a co-worker from the sociology department. He said, My friend called me paranoid, asking if I heard anything about him. Reluctant to speak at all, he didn't specify who the co-worker or friend was. I wouldn't want to put you in harm's way, he claimed. Only one other professor responded to my request to interview her. She said, Sadly, I cannot participate. Several members of my department are implicated in the recent investigations of sexual misconduct. At this time, I think it would be unwise and irresponsible to add my voice to this matter. Unwise and irresponsible. Wow. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love how that all tied together at the end there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Like that last one. So the author will not be here for this interview. So it's just us hosts today doing a roundtable discussion, as you may have heard in previous episodes. Thank you, Sadie. 
The author wrote this piece in a literary nonfiction style and taking many perspectives and facts gathered from different sources. And throughout their quest, the focus isn't on them, but on the stories themselves and impact on the community itself. And as I look around this roundtable, we're all members of the John Jay community as students, all the bare minimum. So where are you all within this piece? Because we all heard about these allegations before this story even came to the podcast. So what is it like to see and hear this depiction and summation of what happened in a literary journalism style? Honestly, I remember when I first heard the allegations and I first heard this was happening, I was honestly like really shocked mm -hmm. because yeah. like I've, I've had nothing but like very like good relationships right, yeah. with my professors for respectful relationships and like really close ones too. But to hear that like like really um just like professors that people have looked up to that, that were like respected, the fact that they could be capable of doing this and taking advantage of vulnerable students, just the fact that they could even be accused of that it's just it was very shocking and it kind of made me re-examine like my own past relationships right. with my mm -hmm. professors like mm -hmm. was there anything ever that could be yeah. like viewed as mm -hmm. improper and one thing i remember is that anytime i've had like a meeting in an office with a professor they've always left the door open yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. that's yeah. i think that's that's a pretty big thing just like open door like mm -hmm. open meeting <laughs> <laughs> I think one thing for me is that like when I first heard about it, it's just like little facts and little bits and pieces I was getting. So like now to read this piece, it's like really kind of like the aftermath of it. We really get to see all the sides. This is like people taking the time now to digest what has happened. Mm -hmm. And like I still have questions, you know, everybody yeah. I'm sure still has questions. Mm -hmm. But at least this piece kind of shows a different perspective that you were not getting at all in the beginning. It was just like everything was just thrown at you. And it was kind mm -hmm. of like crazy to even think yeah. something like that could be accused of happening at our school. The criminals of justice you yeah, know for sure ironic definitely <laughs> yeah i remember when i like um heard about the news um i was in complete shock because i actually ended up having and like taking one of these professors wow. i will not name who but i took them like in the spring like the semester before so when i saw this person's name appear as to be one of the professors who was being accused for doing this i just could not believe it because you know i had mm -hmm. i formed a like you know like a student yeah. and professor relationship with this person and i never would have thought i guess from like all the times i've interacted with you know this professor that they would be capable of doing something like that so it came as a huge shock because like from the times that i've spoken with this person very um intelligent very um well spoken mm -hmm. respected mm -hmm. and i just was in complete shock i just could not believe it he was there and i was just like wow it's definitely tough news to actually think happened it's like hard to swallow and it makes you rethink all of your experiences and your experiences then. I remember last fall, I was more like aware of everything going on right. once the news hit. And I think this piece does a really good job of kind of incorporating all of the news aspects in there. Right, exactly. Because if someone hadn't read one article or they only looked at one source, right. it kind of mm -hmm. did this great summary of like, hey, this is what one article said. This is what another article mm -hmm. said. It was just really tough. I think a lot of students were feeling that but they weren't expressing it in yeah, a lot of instances mm -hmm. so this piece was a really good piece to actually be vocal for a lot of students yeah that i think it's definitely going to help at least mend the like confusion yeah. and like the hurt some students mm -hmm. may feel for sure the title of the story as it's repeated throughout the piece puts emphasis on how distasteful the response by john jay authority was to the sexual allegations on campus there were many reasons that were given for this, like the protections of the accusers and the accused to have privacy and protection themselves, and the necessity for vagueness when you're talking about someone's reputation as a student and as a faculty member. But as it is noted by the author, these professors were also very highly ranked faculty and cannot be ignored. What do you think about this intermingling in the response by the college officials and how could this have been handled better? I don't know. It's mm -hmm. it was kind of a little bit too like hush hush, right. keep it on the down low, um, mm -hmm. kind of like like code of si cone of silence ish. And I don't really, I don't, I don't really like that. I feel like that right. that kind of They're response just dancing around it. Is, mm -hmm. It's it's just like putting this like veil of secrecy over it mm -hmm. and like making it like not okay to talk about it, making right. making it taboo exactly. when it, when it's something that should be discussed more. Mm -hmm. Because like who knows. How many other instances like this could have happened but mm -hmm. this kind of response is why people wouldn't want to go forward because right. it's mm -hmm. just being made taboo and i don't think that's appropriate yeah 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 and even though nobody has been charged i feel like we should be able to speak about these allegations and accusations like openly and not yeah, have right. it be so like quiet all the time yeah. like 
Yeah. I mean, there's something to be said for mm-hmm. the whole innocent until proven guilty. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I mean, these accusations aren't aren't innocent and there has been no no one's been formally charged but like you said um we should feel free to speak mm-hmm. about the accusations and the root of it and the cause and where it comes from and how to prevent more of them right. yeah. but mm-hmm. this whole making it sound taboo and saying it would be unwise and irresponsible to talk about it it's it's gonna just gonna per- perpetuate the problem exactly yeah. mm-hmm. and this is a long problem we know like women don't even go to the police because they don't feel comfortable i feel like this just mm-hmm. makes us feel more unsafe on campus yeah. mm-hmm. and the fact that the response of the school is just like oh there's the wellness center the women's right. center to go Definitely. to as it's it was like so rehearsed. you know like that's yeah. always the response that you get and it just makes it seem like these things like never even happen at least mm-hmm. it makes it feel like students. we're not like it's not human anymore like yeah we're just getting like these robotic oh go to the women's wellness center like yeah. they'll handle your situations there um i found that it was kind of a- ironic the response was hey it's unwise and irresponsible i thought mm-hmm. maybe it would be the opposite wise and responsible for you to kind of address and show the positive sides right. of like yeah. being a professor and how you can have like that student professor relationship exactly. like you didn't have to necessarily touch on it that way i think that professor could have spun it in a different light yeah. i think like what hurts yeah. the most is like professors are like our leaders like they're the leaders of yeah. us as students and like you guys need to give us a direction to go and you guys need to like help us get through this you can't just say oh you know we can't talk about it right yeah. now because yeah. i feel more lost now yeah so we probably touched on this throughout the conversation, but what have you all taken away from this story? It's it's a loaded question. I, I guess for me personally, what I've taken the most away from this story is about how like I was so shocked when the accusations first came out and the mm-hmm. story came out. But I mean, it's there and it's it's something that I have been made aware of. Like I guess I'm I've, I've kind of lost the whole naive idea of um how like this kind of thing doesn't go on here at mm-hmm. my school. Right. right. Like are, yeah. Easily. Yeah. It, it's even if no charges are ever like formally brought forth and whatever the mm-hmm. fact there were the accusations kind of opened right. my eyes up yeah. to the fact that it, this can happen anywhere and we the students and uh, we're like a huge part of the community and we deserve the right to feel free to speak openly mm-hmm. about it and i feel like part of the reason why my I- instant reaction was to start re-examining my own past experiences and thinking like wait was that inappropriate when this mm-hmm. happened or like did any of my like male professors were they ever inappropriate to me like i feel like my gut reaction to re-examining those experiences mm-hmm. is partly because of that response about how it would be unwise and unacceptable to talk about it if we all felt more open Mm -hmm. to talking about it i wouldn't have felt so much wait did anything happen did anything bad happen to me Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. if i had the if i had the space and the openness i think i would have had a Mm -hmm. a better reaction yeah the last part got to me too like unwise and irresponsible to talk about things made me think about just in general there's been sometimes where I feel like I should be silent about certain things and I think it's actually like more unwise and irresponsible to be silent yeah. than right. to right. say something mm-hmm. so it kind of made mm-hmm. me realize like oh like you should always or try to like use your voice because you have one yeah, and exactly. also to like what you're saying Sadie to like question certain things I feel like because you know like we think like people like okay like our professors you know like oh they have like authority over us so like certain things are like normalized but you can like question it and like you have more Mm -hmm. power than you think i think like for me i've taken away that as students we do need to come together more often and like we need to rely on each other because this is honestly the first time i'm really talking about even this whole issue is Mm -hmm. with other students i've never talked about this with another professor anybody in the faculty like as students like if we see that the faculty is kind of failing us in this aspect we could take it into our own hands and at least rely on each other and at least create that community so if something is going wrong you can at least go to your peers and you know have somebody to talk to so it's definitely making me like want to reach out more in terms of like our student community I mean, it's kind of separate to the question but kind of like related i guess like say um anyone who didn't know about this um scandal that happened i'm pretty sure that by reading this piece they would get everything mm-hmm. that they needed to know because i feel like with this piece because it's literary journalism i feel like this author does a really great job pinpointing everything that happened talking mm-hmm. about the events that took place where when and even yeah. even yeah who, and like... multiple sides and even especially like my favorite part when the rate my professor mm-hmm. profile i love the here. Yeah. 
you know, because we actually get images of these people, um, the ratings and even comments that students mm -hmm. from the past that have taken this professor have written about, you know, them and they're really positive things. So it's just like we get this one mm -hmm. perspective of a student that took them and thought, oh, they're like the best professor ever. Yeah. And then this happens and then it's kind of like going like from the good stuff and into like the bad stuff. Mm -hmm. So I really think that with the author, it just worked really well. And somebody who did not know anything about this would definitely know exactly what, when, where, and how. Yeah, yeah I agree. Definitely. So with that, thank you everyone for joining us on this roundtable. It was very informative and we've all had our say in the matter. <laughs> There's probably more to be said, like Sarah mentioned. So gather around and talk about it. If it's something that's bothering you, if it's a different issue, feel free to speak up on it. You have a voice and you have the authority to use it. This story is by an author named Emily Nazi. Emily is a junior at John Jay College, majoring in English with a minor in U.S. Latinx literature and interdisciplinary studies. As a Brooklyn native born to a Puerto Rican Arabic household, she spent her childhood in Tennessee. Emily is definitely no stranger to mixing cultures. After graduation, she hopes to continue her education in literature with a doctoral program. In her spare time, you can find her training in the gym, trying to catch up with her homework, taking naps, or taking her dog Luigi on long walks. Let's take a listen to Emily's story entitled Park Benches. Diker Park sits on the corner of 86th Street and 14th Avenue. It's a landmark to any South Brooklyn native for a couple of different reasons. For children, Diker Park is where you come on the last day of school, where you fight with other kids whose turn it was on the swings. It's where your mother puts globs of greasy sunscreen to protect your ghostly pale complexion. For middle school kids, the adjoining soccer fields were where you went to smoke weed for the first time, only to jump at the rustle of the trees. Maybe this time, it was actually the cops coming after you. For men going through their midlife crisis, the baseball field was where you went to play softball in a last-ditch effort to recapture your youth, only to gas yourself and give up in the second inning because you just don't got it like that anymore. But to Uncle Jeffrey, Diker Park, it's his home. What happened? I asked. Marissa, my cousin, took in Uncle Jeffrey when he first became homeless back in 2017. He was 61 years old then. When asked why she took him in, Marissa says, He's family. I remember that she was appalled that no one had before she did. She could not believe that anybody would leave their own family on the street. In fact, in her spitfire glory, she made sure to say it in front of my grandmother, who had refused to let him stay with her. Marissa took Uncle Jeffrey into the same apartment in the same living room that I had stayed in. The same apartment that, back in high school, I helped paint a cool beige. She had taken him into the same apartment that we had gotten drunk off of wine and coke. She had taken him in, but now she's the same person that's kicking him out again. She's the same person sending him back to the same park bench. So what led up to him living there again, I pray? I have to ask my grandma about it because Marissa refuses to speak about what had happened between them. Uncle Jeffrey is technically my great uncle. He is one of my grandmother's brothers. I asked her one night right after we had just finished eating her famous homemade strawberry shortcake. My grandmother holds her fresh cup of coffee in her hands as we sit across the kitchen table. She recounts the story of her brother, Jeffrey, and why he's taken up residence in the same park she took her grandchildren to summer after summer. She skips to him being homeless the second time, about Marissa having had enough. She doesn't talk about the days he was homeless for the first time, about how he didn't have enough money for rent, about how he had went almost a year without paying rent before being kicked out of his apartment, about how he did not have enough money for rent, but he had enough money for booze and cigarettes, about how the first time he'd become homeless was because he had blown through all of his inheritance money. What led up to him being homeless? She shifts uncomfortably in her chair and she looks at me. Basically, he was living with Marissa, and then he was aware that she was buying this house in Jersey. She had people over helping her pack, and she had knocked on the door and said, I don't mean to bother you, but do you want some pizza? Grandma's voice gives away her frustration. Then there's silence. I almost asked if she's sure that she wants to keep talking about the situation, but I decide against it when she opens her mouth to speak again. He said, What do you mean, bother? You've been bothering me over two hours. 
She raised her eyebrows as if to say, in her house. She's bothering him in her own house. He went on to tell Marissa that she was making a big mistake moving back because, according to him, he was going to die there. So who was Uncle Jeffrey before all of this? My grandma thinks carefully before divulging into her childhood. It's as if she's taking the time to carefully pick the memories that she wants to share. Uncle Jeffrey was the fourth child out of seven to be born to Nanny and Papa, my great-grandparents. As a child, Uncle Jeffrey was cherubic, with round cheeks. I'd only known this Uncle Jeffrey through pictures my grandma had stored in her cold, dusty attic. He was cute and chubby, my grandma says. A faint smile settles on her cheek when she recalls this, but it fades quickly. When she was 14 and he was 8, Uncle Jeffrey would go with my grandma to the movie theaters and to the community pool on sweltering summer days where they would hang out by themselves. It was just around the corner from the house, she assures me. My grandmother liked those days, the days she got to go out with her brother, where she didn't have to worry about her other five siblings. At 18, Uncle Jeffrey would spend his days over at my grandmother's apartment playing with his nieces, my Aunt Sandy and my mom. He enjoyed spending time with them so much that he used to take my mom, when she was only two years old, to the park all the time. My grandmother never worried when her daughters were with their Uncle Jeffrey. He was careful and caring and kind. He loved them. He'd often go with his girlfriend at the time, the first and only girlfriend that my grandma can remember Uncle Jeffrey bringing to meet the family. Maybe he was sort of playing house. He loved taking the kids to go to the park with that girl. She was young pretty, and more importantly, she was involved with our family. Everyone loved her, especially Uncle Jeffrey. She was the same girl that would tell him less than a year later, though, that she had found a new boyfriend, someone she felt could support her better. My grandma sighs, as if to say, he was devastated. <sighs> she goes on. At age 30, when Uncle Jeffrey lost all dexterity in his hand because of a welding accident that happened on site at his non-unionized job, he was unable to get enough, if any, compensation at all. This, combined with the embarrassment and the looming stigma of those dependent on governmental assistance, molded the man that he became. He could never maintain a steady job thereafter, my grandma says, sipping the last of her coffee before looking back at me. She gets up to make a fresh cup. How did you get roped into all of this? When she returns, my grandma watches me from across the wooden table with the bright blue eyes that I've known for so long. The eyes that could switch between moods in a second. It was even the running joke within the family. If grandma gave you the look, you better be scared. But now, her eyes are inquisitive. They look for some type of reaction as she tells the rest of the story. It was as if she was worrying how this was affecting me. According to the police report, during their fight that day, Marissa hurt herself when she fell into a wall. The following day, she filed a police report, and Uncle Jeffrey was escorted out under the pretense that if he did not cause any trouble, he would not be arrested. He was. When he was released a day and a half later, he hobbled his way from the police precinct to my grandma's house on 81st Street, just five short streets and an avenue from Dyker Park. Grandma's house is sandwiched in one of the richest and most socially conservative neighborhoods in southern Brooklyn, Diker Heights. Just steps away from PS204, one of the more funded public schools, her house is a beautiful faded brick with a cobblestone pathway that leads up to her French porch. Just next door, Aunt Sandy's house sits with its beautiful red maple tree concealing the windows she would peek out of to spy on her neighbors. It was around 9.30 p.m. that night after he was arrested that my grandma recalls their first encounter in almost a year. As she tells me the story, my grandma starts banging her fist on the table, mimicking the sounds that Uncle Jeffrey had made that night. Maureen! Maureen! He was calling me, banging the door. That bitch had me arrested! I was getting ready for bed, so your grandfather and I pretended that we weren't home. Thankfully, all the lights and the shades were pulled down. Then he went between our two houses and looked into Sandy's kitchen window. I guess he thought we were over there. She almost called the police on him. Aunt Sandy's kitchen window was frosted. You can look out, but you cannot look in. My cousin Jillian, at just 12 years old, ran to my aunt crying that night because a strange man she had never seen before was looking through the window. If she had seen him on the street, she wouldn't be able to recognize him, Grandma says of Jillian. Because it was true. Us great-grandkids never saw Uncle Jeffrey. The same man who had taken our moms to the park never saw us. 
I could probably count on one hand the amount of times that I had met Uncle Jeffrey. Moreover, I was lucky if I had even said more than a couple of sentences to him in my entire life. Did anybody in the neighborhood see him, I asked, thinking of all the neighborhood friends I had made on this block. For a minute, I stopped to think. Had Devin seen him? Had Brittany? What would they think of me if they saw this random homeless guy banging and knocking on my grandma's door? What would they think of our family? What would they say to everybody else? No, nobody had seen him, thankfully, my grandma responds back. The next morning at about 6 a.m., he had begun knocking on the window again. It was unclear to my grandma if he had spent the night on her doorstep or if he was back. Nonetheless, she let him come in for an hour to warm up before sending him out the door once more. We cannot live together, she said. We're like water and oil. (sighs) Now I try for more info, from my mother this time. How did other people in the family think of him? On Sundays at Nanny's house, he would just take his food and lock himself in his room, my mother recounts. He never came to family barbecues. He only ever came when Grandma was on 58th Street because he lived right there anyway. Every summer, my grandma ritualistically holds a barbecue for every possible holiday. Memorial Day, 4th of July, the block party, Labor Day, whenever there's a graduation in the immediate family. I just can't remember a single time when Uncle Jeffrey was present at any of these events. He only ever comes to big events. I think he came to Jillian's communion, but again, free food and free booze. That's why he always hung out with Marissa and her mother. All they did was drink together. I'm sitting on my mother's bed this time as she folds freshly cleaned laundry and separates each of her children's clothes. She struggles as our family cat tries to jump into their fresh warmth. My mom continues. I can't remember a time where he actually had a job besides the corner store that all of grandma's brothers worked at. People tried to get him jobs, but he just didn't want to work. When I try to remind my mom about Uncle Jeffrey's disability in his hand, she shakes her head. That's an excuse, she says. I asked my mom if she had any memories of Uncle Jeffrey coming over to play with her when she was young. I ask if she remembers all the times Uncle Jeffrey went apple picking with the rest of the family. If she remembered him taking her to the park. If she remembered him before the accident. She doesn't. So, who was Uncle Jeffrey now? When Uncle Jeffrey came up in conversation over Christmas dinner in 2015, at the same wooden table that Grandma and I sit right now, my Uncle Cliffy said about his own brother, Don't talk about that bastard. Most of my family agreed and dropped the subject. At the time, I'd wanted to know more, but it was clear that the conversation was closed. They started hating him when they found out that Nanny was supporting him, my mother fills me in later. She was only living off her social security check, and then she was giving him a portion of it to buy beer and cigarettes. She's visibly upset by the same fact. Her face is tense, and she studies her folded clothes as if to distract herself. Her arms surround the pile of clothes she's neatly folded, and she lifts them to her dresser so she can begin to get ready for Jillian's party. With her mascara wand in hand, she calls on her youngest memories with her uncle. Uncle Jeffrey lived in the house with his brothers, Uncle John and Uncle Georgie, Nanny, Uncle Buddy, and Aunt Mary. Aunt Mary and Uncle Buddy were my grandma's aunt and uncle. Technically, I was only their great-great-niece. Why do they matter right now? As Aunt Mary, my grandma's aunt got sicker. My grandma knew that they had to get her will in order before she started to lose it. At the time, Uncle Jeffrey was living with her. He was about 53 years old, and on most days, he would just stay locked in his room. My grandma took Aunt Mary to most of her doctor's appointments. One day, when they were walking to her appointment, Aunt Mary grabbed my grandmother's arm with her bony fragility and said something that my grandmother repeats to me as if she'll never forget. She told me, please tell him to stop yelling at me. She told me, please tell him to stop stealing from me. As the only man in the house, my grandma knew that she meant Uncle Jeffrey. One day, when Grandma and the rest of her brothers and sisters had taken Aunt Mary to the bank to organize the bonds Uncle Buddy had left her, the bank teller told Aunt Mary that she needed a beneficiary. After asking who it would be, he looked at my grandmother first. But then, suddenly, Uncle Jeffrey said, That would be me. Who was I to say no? He lived with her, my grandmother says normally. My grandma, though, took $4,700 of Aunt Mary's savings and secretly kept it in a box. She wrote down the number on a small scrap of paper and taped it inside the box. 
She told Aunt Mary where it was, but made sure nobody else knew about its location. It was just-in-case money. Money my grandmother wanted her to keep if she ever needed it for herself. After she passed away, we were clearing out her room, and I found the box. From 4700 all that was left was 400 bucks, my grandmother says. Her lips are in a thin line as she sips her coffee with a quiet desperation, as if the coffee would wash away the memory, as if the coffee would return Aunt Mary's money. My grandma confronted Uncle Jeffrey at the time. She says he had a stupid look on his face and just kept repeating, Well, I don't know what she did. She was always shuffling around in her room. That bastard was stealing from her, my grandma says shortly, taking another short sip from her coffee. Is that why you hate him? It's a strikingly similar story that both Grandma and Marissa had told me before. Uncle Buddy, Aunt Mary's late husband, had served in World War II. While cleaning out their room, as per Grandma's duty as the executrix of Aunt Mary's will, it had become apparent that there were missing memorabilia from Uncle Buddy's time in the service. My grandma had her suspicions, but she could never quite pin where Uncle Buddy's things, like his uniform, for example, had disappeared to. That is until Marissa provided a little clarity. Uncle Jeffrey sold them, Marissa says. He says he only regrets selling them for what he did. He knows he could have gotten a little more money for them. I sit and consider these stories for a minute as I debate whether or not to ask my next question. I wonder how I would feel in my grandmother's situation. It was easy to separate myself from Uncle Jeffrey. I didn't know him. And to think he had taken family memories and put a price on them lit a fire in the pit of my stomach. But I know I cannot show my anger. Would my grandma continue telling her story if she knew it was bothering me in this way? My grandma looks at me expectantly. I can tell that reliving this story is angering her as well. Is that what made you hate him? I finally ask her, trying to see if this anger may encourage her to be more open about her feeling towards her brother. I don't hate him, my grandma responds sharply. <sighs> Why, after all this, can't you say you hate him? Grandma's eyes glass over before she opens her mouth to speak. She always had a knack for staring right into your eyes when she was speaking, even when she was as vulnerable as she looked right now. It would kill my mother to see this, she says. Her voice catches, but she plays it off like it does not happen. I try not to pry. It's uncomfortable to see her like that. I almost want to look away and move on from the topic, but she continues anyway. How do you think it feels for all of us to know it's 30 degrees out and my brother's on a park bench? Her brother. My grandma tosses each night and says it's getting worse as the winter gets closer and the nights become colder. On one particular night, not long after he relocated to the park, there were heavy rains so bad that flood warnings decorated the news weather reports. Each clap of thunder had my grandma rolling in her bed till my grandfather woke up too. If your grandfather would have told me to go, I would have gone and picked him up that night, she says. But he did not. My grandma did not pick him up. Weeks later, however, my grandma is still struggling to come to terms with the fact that her brother, for whom she had cared as a baby, was by himself, huddled under a park bench. Each mention of bad weather brings her closer to taking him in, but each time, she cannot. She visits him at Diker Park at least twice a week. She brings him fresh clothes from the plastic bin in her house that holds all of his belongings. I used to buy that homeless man that sat outside Hinch's a roll with butter and coffee every morning, she says dejectedly. Now look. Back then, she must have thought to herself, how could somebody leave their family out on the street like that? How would his mother feel? To see her baby living without a shelter? To see people looking the other way, pretending he's invisible? Now look. Wow. wow. This is so good. It's such a good story. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Oh, thank you for thank having you. me. So you write the story in sort of the form of an interview. There are questions that you ask your grandma, each one followed by another antidote about your Uncle Jeffrey and how he became homeless. So what inspired you to write your story in this form as opposed to a straight narrative? I knew that it really wasn't my narrative. It was the narrative of like a collection of people. So you hear from my cousin Marissa, you hear from my mom, you hear from 
my grandma. You even hear from like just little tidbits from other family members. So I knew it wasn't just my story to be told. So the only way for me to extract kind of all this information was to ask people. So what better way to write it than to reflect the process in which I was able to get that information in the first place? I think that's so interesting because not only do we hear your voice as a writer, but we we can hear your family's voice in the stories that they tell and just the way you describe like drinking the coffee and just looking off. And it's really interesting. Yeah, my family is very expressive, emotive, just like I am. And you hear that in a lot of the way they speak, some of the words that they use, which I was a little concerned with kind of censoring what my uncle actually says. Um, I knew that kind of took away from the authenticity, so I wasn't able to do that. But I think it, first of all, captures the fact that we're from Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it also captures kind of the community and the um, just the emotions that surround my family, Mm -hmm. just the people that we are. We're like, we're very proud people too, where we don't want people to know our dirty laundry, which is why this piece is a little scandalous to me. (laughs) Um, But um, to be able to kind of do them justice in the way that I represent them was very important to me as well. Just to go off of that, it's going to sound a little weird, but it definitely makes the story much more raw Mm -hmm. in the way that when you read something in the form of an interview, you think like it's completely uncensored Mm -hmm. and like uncut. That's what an interview usually is like when Mm -hmm. you have to take things out eventually. But to me, when I was reading it, it was like, wow, this is your uncle's story. And I'm getting every last detail because it's in the form of questions and nothing's being left out. So Mm -hmm. like it made it real. Not that it's not real, but. Yeah, my grandmother's interview was like two hours long. It was right after. um, So my my mother's interview actually was um, a couple of hours before my grandmother's because um, we were all getting together for my cousin, uh, my cousin's birthday. So um, my mom's interview was about an hour, but my grandmother's, it was just so jam-packed with mm. details that it was like two hours long. So I'm sitting there as I'm writing it, like going through the whole, and I'm like, I knew she said this one thing, but I don't remember where. So I had to sit through like, I had to like repeat it like four times. So I'm sitting there with like six hours of just listening to my grandmother talk. And I was like, okay, I'm done talking to my grandma for like a month. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> So in this story, you talk about your uncle Jeffrey's homelessness and the violent incidents women in your life encounter with him. His detachment from your family affects you, especially your grandmother, when you say, my grandmother thinks carefully before divulging into her childhood. It's as if she's taking the time to carefully pick the memory she wants to share. After learning about your uncle blowing away his insurance money and your Aunt Mary's savings, did this change your perception of why the women in your family decided to stop helping him? Also, do you believe your grandmother made the right decision by separating herself from him? What do you think could have helped Uncle Jeffrey and his relationship with your grandmother? That's a long question. (laughs) (laughs) So my perspective on my so I had so when you grow up, you hear um, kind of backhanded stories. And it's not until you grow up that you start piecing them together and everything starts kind of making sense. So you hear your whole life. Oh, he's a bastard. Oh, Mm -hmm. he's this. He's that. And it kind of shapes how you see the person, especially if they're not present in your life. So for a while, that's kind of this idea that I had about Uncle Jeffrey was he's just this wayward guy that kind of shows up at certain family events when he wants to. So to kind of put together each part, it was hard because I had to be very unbiased. I had to be like, there's more to him than just the negativity. Mm -hmm. So I actually had to ask for good things so i had to ask my grandmother like what did you like about him (laughs) like because it started it started off very aggressive the the interview excuse me so i had to ask i had to ask her like well what did you guys do when you were kids what did you do when this and that's how i slowly was able to pull out the positives behind like who he was as a person Mm -hmm. and kind of his backstory and i think it's very overlooked the fact that you know he does have a disability and that does prevent him from jobs that prevents him but my family growing up was more on the conservative side and the idea of living off the government assistance was really looked down upon. So they thought of him as always having these excuses. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely not going to be able to show my grandma this interview, but um, <laughs> it was it was this idea that, you know, he was he was kind of built this way by the family, but there was more complexity to him. Mm-hmm. And the idea of like him burning through his inheritance money, that was kind of expected you know that's how he was like he he grew up for so long you have to think like growing up and then just 
going through an accident and having this disability, changing the way your life is, it's depressing. So you're able to kind of track this kind of mental decline and stability from that point on for his life. So I don't necessarily think that I demonize him. I kind of have sympathy for him. But at the same time, I think, you know, my grandmother and the rest of my family is justified in kind of cutting him off from the rest of us because you have to realize when somebody's toxic, you know, and although it's important to support people and understand people and have that sympathy when it affects yourself and when it affects your grandkids, especially, Mm -hmm. that's something that, you know, you have to put them first, even if that means at the cost of him. You know, she she lives with that guilt and she sees him very often, Mm -hmm. brings him clothes, brings him food, helps him out. But never will she bring him around us Mm -hmm. because I know that even my younger brother and my cousin, they're uncomfortable around him. They don't know who he is. And he's coming in, knocking on the door like that, calling my cousin a bitch. You know, it's it's hard for us, but it's also important to know that when somebody's toxic, when something is toxic for your family, you can't have that around, even if it hurts the person. Right. So living in New York, we encounter an abundance of homeless individuals every day, unfortunately. So for many of us, it's not personal and we're able to walk right past them. Since you have a family member that is homeless, how does it make you feel walking by other people like him? Do you feel more connected and do you feel like you have more of an obligation to help? I do see my uncle and a lot of the people that I pass by. And it's hard because I also like even when passing by Darker Park, I don't look. I, I can't. I know that if I look, I'll feel upset. My mother said the same thing. She's uh, she had to my grandma had went away for a little bit and uh, she needed to bring my uncle clothes. So my mother went. And she said that she would never be able to go back because that's not the person that she knew. You know, she never knew Uncle Jeffrey as being the fun guy that took her to the park, like I said in my story. But she also didn't know him as the guy that's suffering under a park bench, you know. So to see somebody kind of digress like that, it's it's hard. It's it's scary. But to see him reflected in a lot of these homeless people and it added this kind of element of complexity that I understand now to people's stories first of all sometimes people want to be homeless Mm -hmm. you know he didn't want to go to my uncle didn't want to go to a shelter he didn't want to kind of be in that environment so he chose to be homeless instead of going to the shelter but he also is he also resents my family for not offering him endless support Mm -hmm. so I know the story is more complex than just this guy's homeless because he doesn't have money but it also kind of puts this upon myself and I hate to Mm self-victimize like that but it also is is hard because I have this need to help everybody it's like like who do you choose to help who do you know isn't gonna take this money and go buy booze and and cigarettes who do you know is not gonna take advantage of you Mm -hmm. who's not gonna ask for more who's not gonna you know what I mean it's it's more it's more complex like I said and it's just it's difficult to see but I also have to know that I'm not the only victim I can't be selfish (laughs) Uh, I think it's definitely interesting because this isn't a story about someone who got spiritually lost and fell and like felt victim to like some kind of addiction. It's somebody who was unable to take care of himself, who has a disability and who is a little bit prideful due to, you know, that's just the way his family saw government help. It's definitely a more complex story on homelessness. Mm-hmm. And uh, with that being said, uh, what would you like the readers to take away from this? I just I think I want them to see homeless people and to see families a little differently in talking about something that obviously isn't really discussed, especially in conversations. We lose the dimensionality behind these people like my uncle Jeffrey. He worked before he has a family that still loves and cares about him. Like, don't get that. Like, don't get it twisted. We still care about him. That's why we go to see. That's why my grandmother, excuse me, goes to see him. That's why. I was interested in even writing this at all. If I didn't care, I would just kind of not even yeah, write it. Not even. It's 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 so what I want people to take away from this is to just understand that the person that you see is more than just kind of this drug addict. He's more than this alcoholic. He's more than just this guy that's taking up an extra seat on this on the subway. Mm-hmm. So, I think that's what it is. There's more to people than Let me see. As they say. (laughs) 
not to be cliche, but that's basically <laughs> right. it. Yeah. <laughs> in, in, in less terms. <laughs> well, with that, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, it was a pleasure so having you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so Well, that concludes our very last episode. This is the last episode, the 10th episode of the fourth season entitled In Search of Truths. You can always find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching Life Out Loud Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube. We also have an Instagram and Facebook if you want to get some behind-the-scenes content. We'd like to thank everyone who helps make this possible including our sound engineers and editors, our episode writers, our website developers, everyone behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud. And to our audience, we hope you love these stories as much as we did. It was a joy to bring them to you. A very special thank you to everyone listening in. We'll see you soon and good, good night! night!